2007, November 6. Today is Lecture 32, The Origin of the Solar System. Well, yesterday we talked about the basic properties of the solar system. We just gave a really quick overview. Today I want to begin, well, quite literally, at the beginning. We want to talk about the origin of the solar system. It may seem a little bit of a backwards way to do it, but in fact I think talking about the origin or our best ideas of the origin of the solar system and then using the detailed discussion of the solar system later in the quarter to show how this is all pieced together. It's historically a little backwards, but actually I think it works better pedagogically, as we'll see. The key ideas today are a little bit intricate. The first thing is that the present day properties of our solar system still contain within them clues to the origins of the solar system. We look around us and we get important information about the way in which the system formed. After all, we're talking about a system that formed four and a half billion years ago. So how can I possibly know? Nobody was around. Well, actually, that's not entirely true because I can look out at other stars and I can see other stars in the process of forming and in the process of forming their planetary systems. So that information plus the information about the present day solar system is how we put the pieces together to try to really understand this question of origins. One of the main pieces of the primordial solar system is going to be this thing called the primordial solar nebula. This is the process, this is a leftover of the process of the sun's formation. And this solar nebula is going to form a disk out of which is going to condense the various ices and solids that make up the planets that we see. Plus, of course, some of its gases are going to be incorporated, for example, into the Jovian planets. You start out, the way the solar system forms is what's called a hierarchical formation. You start small and you grow big. So what we're going to see is the growth of the planets is going to start with little tiny chunks of stuff called planetesimals, which begin with the tiniest of grains. We're going to see the aggregation of those small grains into these sort of medium rock-sized chunks called planetesimals. We're going to see these planetesimals then further aggregate up into larger self-gravitating bodies called planets. And then we're also going to see that the difference between the terrestrial and the Jovian planets bears with it some difference of its, of its formation, where it formed in the solar system and what it formed out of, is why we have this strong Jovian terrestrial split. So hopefully all these, th all these points here, which are fairly complicated, will become clearer as the lecture proceeds. So what are the clues to the way in which our solar system formed? What can we see by just looking at the present day solar system around us without f trying to invoke anything else? Well, the first thing we can notice, we can look at the motions. Of the, of the planets. And we notice there are a number of similarities among the planets in the way in which they move, not only their orbits, but also the way in which they rotate. So let's start with the orbital motions, which is the thing we're most familiar with. We know that the planets all seem to orbit in nearly the same plane. They all lie within a couple of degrees of the ecliptic. The second point is that most of the planets have orbits that are nearly circular. You know, Mercury is the most elliptical orbit, and it's only got an eccentricity of a little over 0.2. Most of the orbits of the solar system are pretty darn close to circular. It's just Mercury and Mars are the most two most elliptical. So why is that? Why is there this remembrance of circular motion? Why is it so close? Not exact, but it's really close. The other thing is that the planets and the asteroids, for the most part, all orbit in the same general direction. If I take north as my up position and I travel as far north up away from the Earth as I can and look down upon the plane of the solar system, nearly everything is going to follow a right-hand rule of, of orbit. Put your thumb in the north direction, curl your fingers in your right hand, you'll actually get the sort of counterclockwise sense of orbital motion. 
All the planets are moving around the same way. There is no planet that's moving the opposite way in its orbit. Now, there are going to be some smaller bodies which are moving in, in so-called retro, truly retrograde paths. Some asteroids, very rare, and some comets move in these opposite retrograde paths. But they're the minority. In fact, they're the extreme minority. Everything else seems to share a common sense of direction, as if they were all born out of a gigantic circulating system that dynamically remembers that general sense of circulation of the original raw materials. The other clue that's fairly strong is if I look at the rotation speeds, the rotation rates and the rotation orientations of the individual planets, and even for that matter, some of the asteroids, although that gets more complicated, so we're going to leave the asteroids out of this. The first thing we notice is that the axes of the planets, where their north poles are, and the way we define the north pole of a planet is, again, this right-hand rule. You take your right hand, put your thumb up, curl the fingers of your right hand around. That's the sense of direction your thumb is pointing in the direction of the north pole. So if something is actually rotating backwards, we say that it's upside down. We say that it's actually got its, its axis tilted all the way over. So I ask, what is the tilt of this axis with respect to this general plane of the solar system? And we don't find everything perfectly aligned. After all, we know the Earth is 23 and a half degrees, the obliquity of the ecliptic. But what's interesting is with a couple of very interesting and notable exceptions, Nearly all the planets have their axes of rotation aligned up in, so that they're rotating in almost exactly the same sense as they're orbiting around. Again, this sort of shared motion, shared circulation of both the rotation and the orbit. Not all. It's pretty clear when you get into the details of the rotations of the planets, there's a lot of really complex stuff going on in their histories. After all, for example, the Earth is semi-fluid, semi-molten on the inside. And if you've ever taken a can of, of soup unopened, and spun it, you'll notice that after a while, the way the fluids rearrange the energy in there, the can can go from spinning normally to suddenly tumbling randomly, end over end. Whenever you have fluid motions, things get kind of complicated. That probably plays a role in why things aren't exactly aligned. Maybe even impacts play a role. Can you hit something so hard you actually stop its motion or turn it upside down? The other piece of information that we get, and this is very interesting, is the sun, which is, as we said yesterday, is 99.8% the mass of the solar system, is sitting in the middle, and it is rotating in the same general direction as all the planets are orbiting and as most of the planets are rotating. So again, there's this sense of a shared memory, of a shared general sense of circulation which we'll call generally counterclockwise within the early solar system. This is to kind of show you that the situation with tilts illustrate that it's fairly more complicated than you might think. Here are all the eight major planets laid out, and I've put up their axes and their direction of rotation. Now, unfortunately, this blue didn't come out super clear up here. Venus is actually upside down. Venus has a, an orbit, a rotation axis tilt of 177 degrees. 188 degrees would be perfectly upside down. Venus is rotating retrograde. We'll pick that up a little bit more on Thursday when we talk about Venus, but that's certainly a standout as an oddball. Mercury is nearly perfectly aligned with the orbit. Earth, about 23 degrees in round numbers. Mars, about 25 degrees. Jupiter, within 3 degrees. Saturn, 27 degrees. Neptune, 30 degrees. And Uranus is the real oddball. It's practically laying down in its orbit. In fact, its tilt is 98 degrees. The north pole of Uranus's orbit actually goes below the ecliptic plane by about 8 degrees. So, but if you ignore these two exceptions, 6 out of 8 are rotating in the same general sense. 
the same general sense that is found by the rotation of the sun. So again, there's sort of this, if you will, there's this dynamical memory of the general sense of circulation of the material that made up the original solar system. The other layer of clues is when we can look at the planets themselves and look at what the planets are, are composed of. What is the composition of these systems? If I look at the inner planets and the asteroids, so I'm going to concentrate my attention on kind of the inner 0.1 out to about two or three astronomical units. What I find is that they are small and rocky. They are primarily consisting of silicates and iron. And until I get way out in the asteroid belt, it's very rare for me to find ices or volatiles. And I find almost no hydrogen or helium at all, except hydrogen and helium, or at least hydrogen, locked up into molecules. So I have to be in a big molecule like water in order to be present in the inner solar system. I don't find free hydrogen. I don't find, find free helium in quantity in the inner solar system. So the inner portion of the solar system is primarily rocks and solids, not a lot of what we call volatiles. What are volatiles? Volatiles are any compound that, when it's ice, can very quickly flash into a gas. So examples of volatiles are water. Right? If you leave water out and get it hot, it flashes into a vapor very, very quickly. Uh, carbon dioxide is a volatile. You go from dry ice to a gas. Methane is a volatile. Methane is actually frozen in the outer solar system, a gas in the inner solar system, and ammonia. You might recognize those are all compounds of the most common elements, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, with hydrogen. And the exception, of course, being carbon dioxide, which is carbon and oxygen combined. But they're all the sort of top four or five most abundant elements after hydrogen. So we don't find a lot of volatiles. We don't find a lot of ices, probably because it's too warm. They can't exist in solid form. They flash into a gas. Once they flash into a gas, they're subject to forces that literally blow them out of the solar system. The Jovian planets, however, really stand out in contrast. First, they're huge, right? The smallest of these things is 15 times the mass of the Earth. The biggest one is 318 times the mass of the Earth. They're mostly hydrogen and helium. They seem to actually show themselves to have a composition, well, certainly Jupiter's composition, is very close to the composition of the Sun. The Sun is mostly hydrogen and helium. Therefore, the, these things were actually built up of most of the gaseous material that the, the sun formed out of, perhaps as some of the leftover gases. Uranus and, Uranus and Neptune, somewhat less so. But they also have lots of ices and rock cores. In fact, the cores inside these planets are bigger than the Earth. In fact, in a couple of the cases, the cores of the planets are bigger than all the terrestrial planets and asteroids combined. Not only is it rock, but it's rock and a whole bunch of ices. And there's where we see a lot of volatiles. If I look in the atmospheres of the gaseous planets, I look on their cold moons, what I find is ices everywhere. Water ice, carbon dioxide ice, nitrogen ice, methane ice, ammonia ice, as I go further and further out the solar system. When I find, in fact, it's also that outer solar system is when I really get to the outer solar system, when I get to the solid bits away from all the gas giants, I find a lot of ice and rock mixtures with a lot of frozen volatiles. So I go from the inside where it's hot, there's no volatiles practically at all, mostly rocky stuff. By the time I get to the really dark outer reaches of the solar system, it's the land of ice and a little bit of rock. And then right in between is the place where we get the Jovian planets, Jupiter and Saturn, and then the slightly smaller gas planets, these so-called ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. So again, here is a, you know, laid out in, in scale. The small rocky bodies, remember that the sun starts with 75% hydrogen, 24% helium, and 1% of everything else. Well, that everything else consists of silicons and iron as among the major components. 
So it's not too surprising that if you strip away all the hydrogen and helium, you're going to get very little rocky material left behind, so you're not going to grow very big rocky planets. Whereas when you're allowed to begin, for reasons that I hope will become clear shortly, when you're allowed to begin to incorporate hydrogen and helium into the atmospheres of these planets, they can grow gigantic. When you finally get to the outer reaches of the solar system, something changed. There must not be enough gases out there because I stopped seeing gas planets out to about 30 astronomical units. And when you go out 30, 50, 100, I find ice balls. I find frozen volatiles made up of molecular compounds with hydrogen and oxygen, but I don't find hydrogen gas balls anymore. So those are all important clues as to what the structure of the materials, the distribution of materials out of which the solar system formed. Well, to understand how the solar system formed, I have to understand how the sun formed. Because after all, whatever the material was that formed the sun, something like, was it 0.2% of that, was available afterwards for the formation of the solar system. In fact, that's, that's just at least 0.2% must have been available, because that's how much is around today. But as we're going to see, the formation of the solar system is a rather inefficient process in many ways. It takes a lot of raw materials and produces a lot of waste materials. So some fairly large fraction of the material out of which the sun formed became part of the raw materials out of which the solar system formed. Well, where have stars formed? Well, stars form out of clouds of interstellar gas and dust, which is primarily composed of hydrogen in its molecular form of H2 with an admixture of helium, because helium doesn't combine in mole molecules with anything. These very, very large, we're not going to go into details of how this works, but one of these large cold clouds, probably as much as a light year or so across, containing a mass of about one to three times the mass of the sun, begins to collapse. As it begins to collapse, it breaks into star-sized fragments. These fragments, as they're collapsing out, actually have a slight bit of rotation to them. Now, they're really big and they're really fluffy. And the conservation of angular momentum shows us that when something is really big and fluffy and rotating slow, as it collapses down and everything compresses, it rotates very fast. So as it collapses, it actually begins to spin up. As you spin up along the equator, you're going to have more resistance to collapse because you get an additional effect due to the rotational support sometimes called the centrifugal force. And that keeps the equatorial regions collapsing slowly. But the poles have no such res resistance. And so the tendency of a rotating gas cloud is to flatten like a pancake. It, ro it collapses very rapidly along the poles, very slowly along the equator. And so you can go from round to a very rapidly spinning disk. It basically pancakes flat. The central core of this cloud is where all the action is. Most of the mass concentrates in the center of this core. The central core basically peels away from this general surrounding disk of debris and begins to collapse and heat up dramatically. Eventually, the collapse and heating reaches the point that the core temperature reaches about 10, 12 million degrees Kelvin. At that point, you can begin to fuse hydrogen into helium, and the central core goes from being a collapsing protostar into an actual star. So what you end up with very quickly, and it's a very quick process, it happens within, a, within about a million years or so, you go from a very cold, dark molecular cloud to a very tiny protostar in the center, about the mass of the sun, surrounded by a fairly heavy disk of gas, dust, and other debris crud left over, which is called the primordial solar nebula. So that's the process in a nutshell. In pictures, what you see is you start out with, well, just take an idealized, 
big, fluffy, cold, gray, rotating cloud. There's the rotation axis. And as it collapses, it collapses and heats up. Eventually, the core peels away. And that gigantic cloud, and I've had to do a little zoom so you could still see it, becomes a protostar, a protosun, in the case of our solar system in the center, and a flattened disk, all of which are rotating and sharing the sense of rotation. So there's one of the observational pieces. This rotating gas cloud that the sun formed out of left behind some knowledge of its rotation and the rotation of the finally formed sun. And this disk that pancaked also shares that same general sense of rotation. Furthermore, the, the effect of rotating gas clouds to pancake will mean that most of the raw materials that you have left over that did not go into the protostar are going to be in a very flattened disk, all sharing the same sense of rotation. So that's why you would expect now any planetary system to form will form in a fairly well confined to a plane. And that it, all the objects that form out of that in that plane will all share the same general sense of rotation. So that observation that we see of all the planets being confined to the ecliptic, more or less, and all orbiting in the same sense is a memory of this having collapsed and pancaked into a rotating disk. And even the sun bears a memory of that in its, mo in its motions. Here's a cartoon of what this would probably look like. This does not resemble the sun. The sun is still surrounded by a cocoon of material, still falling in and still building the sun up to its current size. But you can see it's surrounded by an immense rotating gas disk here. And in this particular painting, this is a cartoon, they've actually begun to show some material beginning to condense out of this rotating cloud of gas and junk. We call this rotating cloud of gas and junk the primordial solar nebula. Primordial meaning for you know, the original material, the primordial soup. This rotating solar nebula has a composition which is pretty much, ex pretty much is exactly the same as the composition of the sun. It's about 75% hydrogen and about 25% helium. And the remaining fraction of a percent of stuff is metals and various kinds of other solids in the form of what we call dust grains. Dust grains resemble fine soot. They're made mostly of carbon compounds or silicate compounds, or basically little tiny crystals or agglomerations of silicates. So a lot of familiar silicon-bearing minerals are actually found in interstellar space, but as sort of submicroscopic grains. We call them generically dust grains. The same is true of fine carbon compounds. You also begin to get some metals. You get fine whiskers of iron, nickel, and things like that that all begin that are found inside of this uh, inside of this rotating gas cloud. At first, the gas cloud is extremely hot, and if it starts out at a temperature around 2,000 degrees, everything in there is going to be a gas except for those little tiny fine grains of dust. And even some of those dust grains would be in the process of evaporating. But this, once the collapse is finished, there's no more real source of energy to keep this rotating primordial solar nebula hot. And if something is hot in the middle of cold space, it's going to cool off. As it cools off, this is where the fun begins. Because as you begin to drop the temperature, you begin to cross over what is called the condensation temperature for different compounds. Some compounds form ices at fairly high temperatures. A good example might be something like water vapor. Water vapor forms an ice here on Earth at about zero degrees Celsius, the freezing point of water. Carbon dioxide freezes at a much lower temperature. Methane, pure methane, will freeze down at 30 degrees Kelvin, 30 degrees above absolute zero. So this change of what temperature things freeze out at is hotter or colder depending upon the compound. So as you go from hot 
to cooler to cooler to cooler, as you cross through each particular compound's condensation temperature, those compounds will begin to freeze out of the gas into a solid form progressively as you cross through the different temperatures. In the inner portions of the nebula, it may stay so hot that you never cross below certain condensation temperatures, whereas in the cold outer reaches of the nebula, you may condense out a greatly a large number of compounds. So what are these condensation temperatures? What are the various temperatures at which things drop out of gas into solid? They condense out. Well, here's a big table. I don't expect you to memorize this. This is just illustrative. Above a temperature of about 2,000 degrees, almost all the material in the gas cloud from hydrogen up through all the metallic elements are all going to be in the gas phase. They're simply too hot for them to condense out of a gas. When you drop down around 1,600 degrees Kelvin, the first of the so-called mineral oxides can begin to condense out. These are metals like aluminum, titanium, and calcium that are relatively abundant in the early solar material. When the temperature drops by another 200 Kelvin to 1,400 Kelvin, iron and nickel can begin to condense out, forming kind of iron grains or, or iron little whiskers, or like little crystal version, crystalline grains of iron and nickel. So you can see immediately in very hot regions, you really start with the metals, aluminum, titanium, calcium, nickel, iron, and nickel. You should especially pay attention here to iron and nickel. Those are very common in the core of the Earth. It doesn't take too much further down at 1,300 degrees Kelvin. That's when silicon and silicates, various compounds of silicon, oxygen, and others, begin to condense out of the, of the solar nebula, and they begin to form silicate grains. This is aided by the fact that in this primordial cloud, there are already some silicate grains as a consequence of being in the interstellar medium. The interstellar gas has a lot of these little dust grains made of silicates already available. Between 1300 Kelvin, however, and 300 Kelvin, not a whole lot happens. There's a gigantic gulf here. So between 1000 and 2000 degrees Kelvin, I'll condense out the metals and silicates, but everything else will still be a gas. I have to drop to a temperature of 300 Kelvin, now we're talking about room temperature. Okay, 300 Kelvin is room temperature. That's where carbon grains will begin to condense out. That's when you'll start getting carbon-bearing stuff and carbon-bearing goop. That will start coming out of the gas phase. And then you have to go between 300 to 100 Kelvin and below. And at those temperatures, hydrogen and nitrogen compounds forming with carbon or oxygen begin to condense out as ices. So for example, you start out with about 273 degrees Kelvin, just below 300 Kelvin is where water ice comes out. Somewhat below that, carbon dioxide ice. Below that, ammonia ice, nitrogen and hydrogen, NH3 is ammonia, and methane, CH4. Now, it seems kind of appropriate. We're here in a chemistry classroom. There's very, very few chemical compounds you need to know in this class. And here are four of them right there. They're actually the four most important chemical compounds in most of the solar system, water, Carbon dioxide, ammonia, and methane. Well, so you have to drop down to fairly cold temperatures. Now we're getting into really cold stuff here, 100 Kelvin, 30 Kelvin, and so forth. You've got to get really cold before you start getting the ices and the volatiles. So what you expect is, if it stays hot in the inner portions of the solar nebula, you're only going to get iron and nickel and silicates. You're going to have to move further out until it cools off before you get to carbon, and there's a big gap here. Hmm, I kind of see a big composition gap in the solar system. Whole bunch of silicates and iron in the middle, and then you don't get the ices and the carbonaceous stuff until you're way the heck out towards Jupiter. Finally, when you get the carbon compounds, 
Then, when you reach temperatures of 300 to 100 Kelvin, you start tapping into hydrogen. There's another thing in here that's also important. Remember way, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the top 10 most abundant elements, right? Hydrogen, helium, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. Okay, those are the top five. After the top five, we start getting into slightly rarer stuff, sulfur, silicon, iron, and so forth. So this stuff is really rare. It's really a small, tiny fraction of the contents of the solar nebula. And so there isn't going to be a whole lot of it to start with. However, once you start tapping into carbon, this is the first time you hit one of those top five elements. And then you start getting really cold. You now tap into compounds of oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, but notice they're forming with hydrogen, which is super abundant. So it really isn't until you get very cold that you start tapping into the largest constituents of the solar nebula. When you're hot, you tap into the rarest, just peak of the iceberg kind of stuff in composition. And that's another important clue as to what we expect to go on during planetary formation. So there's a lot of information in that table. Well, this distinction between the silicates dropping out at about 1,300 Kelvin, and then you get almost a whole 1,000 Kelvin to go before the carbonaceous grains give out, that gives you a big gap in composition of where things begin to go solid. And this composition, again, is rocks and metals are going to be condensed out anywhere the temperatures drop below about 1,300 Kelvin. The carbon grains in the ices are only going to condense out when the gas gets colder than about room temperature, than about 300 Kelvin. We call the dividing line in the solar system for this the so-called frost line. The inner solar system never gets cold enough for ices or carbonaceous materials to form. So if I look around me at the terrestrial planets, ices, which are the roots of the volatiles, and carbonaceous materials are pretty rare. I mean, okay, we've got a prejudice about carbonaceous stuff because we're carbon-based life. But we really are a very small minority of the composition of the Earth. The Earth is mostly silicates, silicates and iron. However, once I get into the outer solar system where it gets really cold far from the sun, I find lots and lots of carbon-rich junk. A lot of the asteroids are practically black because they're carbon-rich. Lots of carbonaceous goo on practically every solid surface out in the outer moons of the solar system, and just ices everywhere I look. And this dividing line, where the temperature drops below around 300 Kelvin, we refer to as the frost line. So whenever we refer to the frost line, we're going to find that there's going to be sort of a dividing line between the inner solar system and the outer solar system. And that dividing line we're going to call the frost line. The frost line is going to turn out to land somewhere around three to four astronomical units out, which is not too surprisingly right smack in the middle of the asteroid belt. Right? It's right in the division between the terrestrial planets on the inside, the terrestrial rocky planets all formed inside the frost line where it's too warm for ices to form, and the giant planets and the ice balls of the outer solar system formed beyond the frost line. Well, how did they go about forming? All I've done at this point is make little grains of slightly solid material, but it, if I could pick up some of it, it'd be like fine soot or almost the qu quantity of very finely ground flour at, at, at its coarsest. How do I go from that to this gigantic rock we're standing on today? Well, one of the things that happens is as these grains are moving around, their surfaces are kind of sticky. Now, how sticky depends upon what they're made of. Silicates are less sticky, for example, than carbonaceous grains with ices condensed on them. As they move around, they collide, they stick together, and they form bigger chunks. 
the bigger chunks have a bigger cross-section. They're a bigger target, and so they're more likely to pick something up. And the process kind of snowballs. Now, still, the grains are still pretty small. These, these pieces, which we'll call planetesimals, are still beginning to grow. If I actually get outside the frost line, I get a layer of frost on the, on the particles, and the frost makes the particles even stickier, so they grow even faster. Now, over time, this process is pretty fast. Once you actually begin this condensation process, in a few thousand years, just by sticking, by these low-velocity low collisions between things, because you know, they're all orbiting around the sun in the same direction, so they're all moving about the same speed, and they kind of have these slow collisions together, and as they stick, they snowball up. Of course, as big planetesimals run into small planetesimals, they can either stick to those planetesimals, or if they hit them too hard, they break them apart. So there's always formation and destruction going on, but it generally seems to favor formation for growth. It's a non-gravitational process. It's just one material sticking to another. And they grow from grains into these little balls of junk we call planetesimals. Now the planetesimals will continue to grow until they get to be about kilometer size. So a typical planetesimal is probably kind of like a big rock or a boulder or even car sized. But eventually, you get up to something that's starting to get to be about, about a kilometer across. So you're getting to something about the size of this campus as an ice or rock ball. Once you start getting up to that size, its mass starts giving it a substantial gravitational field. And now, the growth process gets a little bit of an extra help. Now, instead of having to rely on the fact that you're going to run into something, and it has to be right in front of you. So before, the snowplow effect is you're limited basically to your size, right? How much snow I can collect on myself as I'm running down the street is limited by my cross-section, right? I can't really reach out and grab snow. I'm pretty much stuck with just my cross-sectional areas. I collect snow running down through a snowstorm. But imagine that I've got gravitation. What gravitation allows me to do is my self-gravity gets big enough, I can actually begin to reach out and grab things and pull them into me. That increases my effective size. It's like suddenly opening up my coat as I run down the street. Or now, instead of opening up my coat physically, I'm now using the gravitational field between the planetesimals and the other grains to begin hoovering up the material. That will accelerate the growth process because I now have access to much more stuff because I can use gravity to kind of reach out and, gra reach out and touch it. This leads to a growth scale which was going along pretty good for a few thousand years suddenly to kick into high gear and I will very rapidly begin to grow very, very quickly from, from small planetesimals to pretty big planetesimals, things that are starting to get kind of small moon size very, very fast. So the process looks like this. Here's what one of these grains of stuff looks like. This is actually an interplanetary grain collected from a high-flying high aircraft. This is one of the U-2 aircraft experiments. We expect over time they would stick together into kind of these, you know, lumpy cauliflower looking like messes here, which are just sticking together by material forces. But eventually they get big enough that their gravity begins to make them into fairly large compact bodies. They start looking like little moons, and they start running into and bashing into each other, reaching out and big things, reaching out and grabbing the small things. So it's a very, very, um, uh, very um, unequal process. Bigger things are going to get bigger because they got more gravity. So once you get big, you're almost guaranteed to get bigger unless you have such a high-speed collision that you get busted into smaller pieces. So we expect we go from gas to eventually the whole solar nebula beginning to fragment. But these cartoons are not too far off. There's a lot of junk, right? Right now the solar system's pretty empty. 
These solar systems have an awful lot of junk running around, which means all those multi-body gravitational interactions we talked about, they're going on all the time, and some of them are very, very strong. And that's why the dynamics of the solar system is a very dynamic situation. So what happens? Well, in the inner parts of the solar system, the only planetesimals you can form are going to be rocky. They're going to be made of silicates and iron. And that's because it's too hot to form any ices, to form any carbonaceous junk. So these things are going to collide together, and they're going to stay rocky, and you're just going to form big rocks. Now, because it's so close, you're not going to be able to hoover up. There's tons of hydrogen gas all over the place. There's tons of carbon gas and carbon dioxide and ammonia, other junk running around. But you're just not very big, and it's too hot. And you simply cannot reach out and grab hold of that hydrogen. You can only grab onto the rocks. And so that really limits how big you can grow. It really keeps you from growing very big. The other problem is you're very close to the sun, and the sun is getting hotter and hotter. It's heating up, and it's starting to light up to its full strength. As it does that, its radiation literally begins to push against the gases. The rocks and stuff are too big to respond, but the gases get blown away in a solar wind. So even though you're starting to grow big enough to maybe start grabbing some of that hydrogen, by the time you do, the hydrogen's practically all gone because the sun is slowly blowing it away. So this is why we get in the interterrestrial planets. We find rocky terrestrials with very few ices and very few volatiles. It's just too hot. And they're just too, too small to be able to hold on to much by way of gases. Now later, we can deliver gases to them from the outer solar system in the form of comets. And that's one of the, that, along with volcanism, is the primary way to build an atmosphere. But that's a different story for a different day. Today, we just need the platform. And that platform are the interterrestrial planets. So here's what a terrestrial planet probably looks like early on. Like this is the Earth in the process of formation. It's carved a groove out of its local environment. And it's just getting pummeled over and over again with these rocks. And its surface is going to be almost entirely molten. The energy from all these impacts keeps the surface of the Earth completely molten and mixed up. But it's molten. As it's molten, the heavier iron and nickel will sink down to the core, the lighter silicates will sink to the surf, float to the surface, and we'll end up with a differentiated body looking a whole lot like the Earth and Mercury and Venus and Mars do today. So this is what we expect for the formation of a terrestrial planet. Small, rocky, differentiated, virtually no gas, virtually no volatiles. The Jovian planets, however, they're the lucky ones. They're out in the good neighborhood. They're out in the cold reaches beyond the frost line. There's lots of ices. And all of a sudden, they've got a tremendous amount of solid material in the form of ices available to them to grow. And they do grow. They grow really fast. These large ice balls accumulate on the rock balls, make them super sticky. Their masses grow almost exponentially. And you can actually grow 10 to 15 Earth mass solid rock and ice cores. These are super Earths. The biggest thing we could grow in the terrestrial planet zone is, well, the Earth. These things are 10 or 15 times the size of the Earth. But by the time you get out to the distances of Uranus and Neptune, you're starting to run out of stuff. And you can only build up to kind of Earth-sized rock and mostly ice cores. But these super-Earths have a lot of gravity. These large masses give them a big, strong gravitational fields, and it's cold, so the gases are moving slower. Slow-moving gases in a big gravity field equals... Hoover time for the gas. And Jupiter will literally run around the inner portion of the solar system and hoover up every bit of gas in its surroundings. 
and it will just grow to immense size by just piling on the hydrogen and helium because it's big enough and cold enough to hang on to it gravitationally. And so you very quickly accrete tremendously big hydrogen helium gas atmospheres on top of these rock and ice cores. The bigger your core, the faster your growth. Not surprisingly, Jupiter and Saturn had the biggest cores. They grew up in the most resource-rich environment in the solar system, and they grew very fast. Jupiter reached 318 times the mass of the sun. Right? That's starting from 10 to 15 Earth masses. I'm sorry, 10 to 318 times the mass of the Earth. Starting from 10. So that gives you an idea of the tremendous amount of growth. Even Uranus and Neptune start out with one or two solar Earth mass cores, they grew to 15 or 17 times the mass of the Earth with hydrogen and folding up more ices. So what you get is these very, very large planets. They've got huge gravity. And of course, their gravity, as they're whipping around, begins to begin to perturb all the rock balls around them. You try to form something big, and Jupiter is just the 800-pound gorilla, or if you will, the 318 Earth mass gorilla of the solar system and it pushes everything around in its environment. They're gravitationally dominant. And they actually begin to clear the solar nebula, but now not by this gentle solar wind. They gravitationally toss out rocks or they accrete what they do not throw away. They begin to scatter planetesimals around. And so actually the process of Jovian planet formation is rather violent. It actually begins to strongly disrupt the, the, the solar nebula. So here's probably what the formation of Jupiter looked like. They grow in tremendous size very rapidly. And in fact, they can even suck up smaller moon-sized rocks and build their own miniature solar systems around them. For example, the, Jovian, the, the four Galilean satellites of Jupiter was probably Jupiter grew so big, it formed its own little proto-Jupiter nebula and actually had a solar system form in miniature around it. That's why the Galilean satellites are as big as they are in the orbits they are. As the, there I go, got right ahead of myself. As the gas gets attracted to the proto-Jupiters, it actually will pancake and form a rotating disk of material, and you actually form miniature solar systems. But now you're going to form solar systems because you're beyond the frost line out of rock and ice. And so we expect, and indeed we find, the giant moons, and indeed most all of the moons of the outer solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, and so forth, are ice balls. They're low-density ice and rock conglomerates. We'll see that in a lot more detail as we go along, but I'll just give you the story right now is look for relatively low density, high ice content things for all the moons past Jupiter, uh, Jupiter and beyond. The asteroids kind of fall in the middle. There's expected to be a lot more ices in the asteroid belt than in the interterrestrial planet zone. There's expected to be some carbonaceous junk because you're getting into the place where carbon grains can begin to fall out. However, the gravity of Jupiter never lets them form into a planet that keeps them all stirred up. The minute something gets big, it gets kicked into an elliptical orbit, and all of a sudden it's crossing the orbits of all this other stuff. It ain't too long before it runs into something else, and whack, and all of a sudden you get a high-speed collision, and you break it apart. So before you can ever build anything very big, you're going to very quickly break it up because the collisions are so violent because of the stirring due to, due to Jupiter. That's why there's no fifth planet between Mars and Jupiter. It was a dynamically hostile environment for planet formation. It has to be kind of gentle. In the outer reaches of the solar system, far beyond the Uranus-Neptune zone, the cold ices condense very quickly on any piece of rock that forms. They snowball up. 
But there isn't a whole lot of stuff out there. You're getting into the outskirts of the solar nebula. It's really thinning out out there. And so you never really grow very big because there isn't much raw material. Even Uranus and Neptune cannot achieve Jupiter or Saturn kind of status because there just isn't enough material around them to, make it, to get that big. They have to get up around 5, 10 times the mass of the Earth in their core before you can really become you know, the hydrogen hoover from hell to grab this stuff up. So Uranus and Neptune never really grow big. And the smaller ice balls out there never get much bigger than a dwarf planet like Pluto or Eris. Now, the gravity of Neptune all plays a role in the outer solar system analogous to the stirring role that you get of Jupiter in the inner solar system. The gravity of Neptune kind of stirs up the ice balls in the outer solar system and actually assists the formation of fairly big Pluto-sized objects, especially in these 3 to 2 resonance orbits, and it disperses the rest of the ice balls and confines them out into the Kuiper belt. So the formation of a Kuiper belt is exactly due to the presence of Neptune in that orbit. So the outer solar system, as the sun is quickly blowing away the material, is going to be belts of ice balls pushed into there and formed, if you will, by the, the gravity of Neptune. So mopping it up. The whole process I just described took about 100 million years to assemble the solar system from formation to the final materials beginning to blow away. However, a lot of the rocks, the smaller rocks, were still left around, and it took about a billion years for the gravity of Jupiter and Neptune to clear them out. Where'd they go? They pummeled every solid surface they could run into if they were kicked out of the solar system by Jupiter or if they didn't fall into the sun or Jupiter themselves. And so most of the heavy cratering we see on the surfaces of solid bodies, solid airless bodies, occurred during the first billion years of the solar system. It's part of the cleanup process. By now, four and a half billion years later, most of those rocks, but not all, are gone. Finally, the sunlight of the proto-sun blew away the gases and cleared out to produce the solar system we see today. So the solar system we see today probably looked a lot like it did about a billion years after its formation. And now we know enough to see what those processes of formation are. Let's go out into the solar system and see if we can read that history off. And that's where we'll pick it up tomorrow.